on college campuses as well as uh, in church. And uh, uh, so I'm, you know, my, I think my, my officially published uh, topic was genetics and biochemistry, and I hope that we'll get to some of that. But uh, I actually went on the website and listened to most of the classes that have been done so far, so I get an idea of what you've talked about. Um, and uh, I wanted to, to, to start off by like backing up and, and looking at big picture. But before I do that, I'll just tell you a little bit about uh, uh, myself other than what was, uh, uh, was already stated. Is I, do, I do have a, a science background. Um, uh, I got a, a, a degree in biochemistry from Mississippi State University. And I was an ROTC guy, so uh, um, uh, so I was going to be commissioned into the Army. I did 27 years in the Army. Um, it's Veterans Day weekend, so thank you to all the veterans out here, my fellow veterans. Um, but uh, the Army at that time, this was the 70s, and it was uh, soon after the Vietnam War, and so they were allowing people to do things normally they wouldn't do. And, and I wanted to go to graduate school, so the Army... Uh, allowed me to delay my active duty time. I went and got my PhD in biomedical research. And, uh, and then once I finished that, then uh, since I had the PhD, then the Army had me do uh, medical research for the Army for about 13 years. And, uh, and then we were doing our hardship tour in Hawaii, and uh, they called and, and offered an opportunity to go teach biology at West Point. So we went and did that. We were supposed to be there for a couple of years, but they ended up asking us to stay. And we stayed there for the rest of our career, and then I retired in 2006. Um, and uh, we moved to the Atlanta area. Our kids were all coming down uh, south to go to college and settling, and so it was good for us to get, get uh, from New York back to the south. And, um, and I was hired as the Charter Dean of uh, Science and Technology at Georgia Gwinnett College. So this was a brand new college. When I walked in the door, we had no students and no faculty. And 13 years later, we have 13,000 students. So uh, you know, I've you know, worked really hard. My wife, Jenny, is over here. She's actually in the School of Education at the college. And, um, uh, but I want to tell you a, a little bit, just kind of a snippet of how I got interested in this topic. Um, so when I went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to major in, as many students do. And I changed my major four times in four semesters. Um, I ended up in my fourth semester deciding I was going to be a science uh, person and majoring in biochemistry. And uh, the first thing I had to struggle with when I became a biochemistry major was... You know, I am a Christian, and this was the 70s, and there was a lot of conflict, you know, between uh, uh, science and uh, the Bible at that time, and I was like, I want, I want to be a scientist, but I'm also a very committed Christian. How do I, you know, what do I do with this? And um, at that time, I read an article uh, uh, about something that promoted uh, something called the gap theory. And uh, in the gap theory, it was an interpretation of Genesis 1 uh, that said that instead of the, uh, um, the earth was void and formless, that you could interpret as the earth became void and formless, and that there was some long period of time between God, you know, uh, creating initial and then when you had the seven days of creation. Now, I didn't delve too much into this idea, but what it told me, that it, it was like... Uh, a relief for me to say, hey, 
I can be a scientist and I can be a Christian, whether I really, you know, believe in this or not, or think that that's really the interpretation. It was just like this, uh, this freeing idea that, uh, that there didn't have to be conflict between science um, and, uh, and religion. Um, and at that time, there really wasn't a whole lot out there to read uh, about this topic. Um, it wasn't really until the 90s that you really had kind of an explosion of material in this area. And when that stuff started coming up, I read all of it. Um, I remember the first two books that I read that really got me excited about this topic was uh, The Crater and the Cosmos by Hugh Ross and uh, Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe. And those two books got me going on this topic. And I've read... Um, uh, a lot and, and, and taught various things. And, and uh, my approach to this topic when I talk about it is not to try to tell people what I think, but to try to show people all the possible ways in which you can think about this topic so that people can decide for themselves what they think. So I want to go through a couple things. Uh, one of them is to talk about just this intersection of science and theology and ways to consider that, uh, that relationship or intersection. Then I want to talk a little bit about, um, I don't know, the uh, best way to say it is kind of what people believe um, and, and various different positions. Just to say this is just kind of what people think, particularly um, I would say people who are pe believers, people of faith, and who um, are scientists. How do they, you know, what are the various different ways, kind of big buckets, I would say. There are all kinds of positions out there, but there are, you know, about a half dozen or so buckets that people put their ideas into. And, um, and so just an idea, if you're new to this topic and it's like you don't know what people think out there other than what you've heard um, at church, uh, then um, maybe uh, it'll be helpful to some folks to, to get that, um, that idea. Um, okay, so um, some of you may have seen this kind of representation before, but uh, if, if one was to think about um, uh, theology, also I'm notoriously bad for spelling things bad on the board if I do just ignore it. I really do have a PhD, I just can't spell. Um, so if one considers theology kind of this broad area of the study of God and uh, science the study of the physical world, one could represent these two areas kind of like this. And this is what we would call the independence model. In other words, there is this understanding of who God is, there is this understanding of science, and these two areas, these two broad areas of study do not overlap. Um, and you think, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but a lot of people have really thought, and if you listen to sometimes to people talk, people will start talking like independence uh, model. So let me, there was a, there was a uh, I'm going to read some, just some quotes to give you an idea. There was a booklet that the National Academy of Science put out in 1999. It's still out there. It's called Science, Evolution, and Creationism. And here's a quote from it. 
Scientists, like many others, are touched with the awe at the order and complexity of nature. Indeed, many scientists are deeply religious. But science and religion occupy uh, two separate realms of human experience. Demanding that they be combined detracts from the glory of each. So the National Academy of Science essentially is taking an independence you know, uh, theory there, saying you have these two realms, you can have scientists who are deeply uh, religious, but they, they're just completely two different realms. Uh, they do not intersect. Uh, another quote uh, from a, a writer, a biology professor who's a writer, said evolution deals with science and has nothing to do with faith or what you believe. Um, or uh, famous uh, uh, Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, The magisterium of science covers the empirical realm, what the universe is made of, like facts, and why uh, why does it work in this way, theory. The magisterium of religion extends over questions of ultimate meaning and moral value. These two magisteria do not overlap. So the idea is that these two ideas are completely uh, independent. Uh, this is, uh, you'll still hear this kind of theory. It's not real popular, but, but you'll still hear this quite a bit talked about. Um, it was very popular during this time in the, in the early 2000s when there was a lot of discussion about evolution in schools and so forth. And most of the public was religious, and yet scientists wanted to have credibility for science. And so one of the ways that they dealt with that was to say the scientific community would say, listen, it's great to be religious. And we have science, and those two are completely separate, so it's okay. Um, and, um, and then we've also seen this in, uh, in the religious circles, among religious leaders who say, hey, science is about uh, facts and study, and that's great, uh, but it has nothing to do, you know, fact, faith is about our pursuit of God, and these two areas are, are separate, so it's okay. Um, but um, I would say that, um, I mean, even the title of this class, we're talking about the intersection of science and theology, that most folks consider that there is some overlap here between these two areas. That is, that in the study of God, we have areas that we don't have scientific kinds of uh, questions or understanding that come there. We certainly, in science, we have areas that don't have theological implications, but there are areas that overlap. Um, And the question is, what do we do with those areas that overlap? This class was formed, the intersection of science and religion, the assumption that there are areas that overlap. What do we do with that? Now, some people think that overlap is very small. Others think that overlap is quite large, and it just depends. But the real question is, in those areas that we consider overlap, what do we do with that? And there have been a number of ways in which people uh, deal with this overlap. Um, A number of years ago, one of the things that was real popular, and you'll see it's still talked about today, what we would call the conflict um, thesis. A way to deal with this overlap, the conflict thesis. Meaning that when we have science and theology that uh, overlap, that talk about the same things, that one of them has preeminence over the other. So in other words, a scientist might say, 
when science and uh, theology uh, overlap in certain areas, science takes precedence because science is about reason and fact, right? Um, and so that, that's a way of the conflict theory. Uh, we're just, we're just going to uh, a priori say that science, anytime, anytime there's, uh, they come together, then science takes precedence. Um, in, in religious circles, you've seen uh, this kind of thinking in terms of um, uh, conflict theory, where uh, a religious person might say, uh, if there's overlap between science and theology, then, uh, then uh, religion always wins out. Because it, it's the Bible, right? So the Bible says it. That's what it is. Even if it conflicts with science, then, um, then the Bible takes precedence. So that's a way of applying a conflict um, thesis to this kind of overlap. It's still very popular, and you'll see people talk about it um, fairly often. Uh, another way to view this overlap is what we would call uh, a, a, a dialogue thesis, um, uh, where uh, anytime you have overlap is an area for constructive dialogue. It's an integration kind of way of looking at uh, this um, overlap. Um, some prominent uh, scientists who have made quotes that have that have seemed to indicate this idea that this intersection is a useful intersection, not a confliction or uh, an area for conflict. Um, Isaac Newton said, the most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Um, Albert Einstein, who went through many perturbations of his religious feelings, said, Science without religion is blind, and religion without science is lame. And then you've got uh, Charles Townes, who was a Nobel laureate a physicist who discovered, for his discovery of the laser, he said, increasingly science is showing how, our, how special our universe and we are, which has raised questions about whether it was indeed planned or influenced. So you have people starting to think that we have this overlap, this overlap is area for constructive, um, constructive uh, discussion, constructive dialogue. So the dialogue model acknowledges something very important, and it's something I have experienced both as a Christian and a scientist, and that is areas of theology, the study of God, and areas of science require interpretation. When I read the Bible, when I uh, study... Um, it requires me to interpret um, what, what I read. There, it's, there's an interpretation in the study of God required. The same is true of science. I published a lot of peer-reviewed papers, and every one of them I collected data, and I wrote it up, and every time I had to make interpretations of the data. It did this in this circumstance. Did that, can I extend that and say that is true in all circumstances? I might say that, and somebody else might come along and show that that's not true. But the uh, acquiring of knowledge about our physical world requires interpretation. So if, if these two areas require interpretation, the idea is that um, there's area for dialogue. And, and maybe the interpretation opens up um, uh, the idea for discussion. Um, there's a good quote from uh, Hugh Ross 
in one of his books where he says, God's word is written in the cosmos as well as the pages of scripture, and his word is consistent. The Bible is inspired by God and the universe is created by God. The value then of integrating science and theology is that that integration provides us with our best opportunity for testing truth and ferreting out our faulty interpretations from science and theology. So we, we, we look at data, we look at our interpretations, where they come in conflict, it opens up for constructive dialogue. And, um, and that's, that's kind of the way that this, this dialogue or integration model um, would work. From a theological perspective, you'll see people talk about what's called a dual um, revelation idea of looking. And that is dual revelation means that God speaks to us in two ways. That is special revelation through sacred scripture and general revelation through nature. And if God is speaking to us in these two different ways, what we know about the, what God speaks is He always speaks truth, right? So we, it's, we can't get ourselves in a situation where we believe that these two conflict. Any uh, conflict is apparent conflict. And it's just area for more discussion and uh, study. So... When we have this overlap, there are two kinds of things that, that happen in this overlap. There are, areas, there are areas where we have conflict, and in this dialogue model, we would say any conflict in this area of overlap is apparent conflict. We just need more discussion. Um, uh, but we also have those areas that agree, right? So the, we have overlap and the areas agree. Uh, this has been a really fruitful area of what we would say science apologetics. So it's a way in which we can use science to show that, uh, that there's a God to an unbeliever. We can use science to, to show that. And we do that through apologetics by acknowledging uh, religion says this and science says this. They agree and therefore that becomes evidence for... Um, uh, for an apologetic uh, teaching. Uh, a simple example, let's ignore the when or how long, but um, the fact that the Bible is the only sacred uh, um, uh, scripture of all the world religions which acknowledged that there was a beginning to space and time. There was a beginning to the universe, Genesis 1-1. And science says the same thing. Now, we can argue about when and timing, and those are all really interesting arguments, but the fact is that uh, Judeo-Christian scripture says there was a beginning to the universe. It's the only world religion that says that there was a beginning to the universe, and science supports that. So that becomes a, can become a powerful apologetics tool, but we all know that uh, science didn't always believe, you know, the evidence from science didn't always indicate that there was a beginning to the universe. That's been fairly recent in, in, uh, in time. Uh, prior to Einstein's study, the prevailing opinion in science was that the universe was eternal. Um, but we now know it's not. And so, and so, we can, we, so this, this idea of this overlap can become powerful for uh, apologetics. Okay. So if we, um, in thinking about this overlap, um, 
uh, we've got uh, these areas for dialogue that we that we can talk about. And the list of things that we can talk about in this overlap area, I think, are getting longer and longer and longer. It's very interesting stuff, some of it in biology, some of it in cosmology, some of it in social science. Uh, there's, there's lots of overlap out there. There's very, very interesting things. And if you want to read about any of those areas, they're just, I can't keep up with the book. I have three or four books at my house that I want to read, and I haven't had time, you know, when you start a college from scratch. And uh, you don't have a lot of time. I have not kept up with all my reading, but they're just coming out all the time. It's very interesting things. Um, now, let's, let's transition to talking about uh, what people believe and um, uh, the various ideas behind uh, people's um, uh, theories. Now, I think this is a really useful exercise for a couple reasons. One of them is a lot of times people who, uh, who are not in the science area don't always think about these things. They just, uh, um, until their kids are in uh, junior high and high school and they start coming home and talking about some of these things, right? Um, but uh, many times people don't think about these kinds of things. Some of us who are in the field are, have to deal with it. Um, and um, I have taught evolution at the college level. And, and so you have to come to grips with how you're going to deal with these topics and teach these kinds of things. Um, and uh, so that's, that's one useful exercise in this is to have this idea of what are the what are the ways in which people think about these topics out there and deal with this intersection and deal with this uh, relationship between science and theology. But the other reason that I think this is really important, and I think this is probably the most important reason, people are talking about this stuff out there. And if you haven't met somebody who is struggling with their belief in God because of what they learn in the science realm, then you haven't been talking to enough people because they're out there. And it is important to know when people start talking to you and saying, well, I think this and that and the other. Uh, it's, I think it's important for, to know, you know what people think and what they believe. And, and, so, and so you can have a rational conversation about, about uh, this topic. When do I, am I supposed to finish? Ten till. Ten till. Okay, good. Fifteen till, technically, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's just like class. My students start leaving, you know, when it's time. Um, okay, so let's let's uh, start. And these are, you know, uh, um, kind of listed in an order that uh, um, that has some logic to it. This is where my spelling's going to get bad. Okay, so at the top of the list we have ontologic naturalism, and I think I won't spend a lot of time with this because I think I, uh, one of your classes you talked about some worldviews and talked about naturalism, but this might be at the top of the list about uh, the way people think. Um, and uh, um, did I spell it right? Ontological? No, I didn't. Uh, ontological naturalism. I told you. <laughs> Too many O's and N's. Um, so basically, this, this idea is every, everything, any history of time in the history of the universe can be explained by what we can touch, see, feel, measure. Naturalism is all there is. 
There's nothing beyond. There's nothing spiritual. Um, and, and therefore, uh, the origins of life and the origins of the universe have to be explained by natural means. And, and we can talk about the way that theolo theological, uh, how, that, how that plays into the way th uh, uh, scientists start thinking about the beginnings of the universe and things like that. But we don't really have time to do that. But let me give you one quote from um, uh, a, um, uh, a famous paleontologist, uh, George Gaylord uh, Simpson. It is already evident that all the objective phenomena of the history of life can be explained by purely naturalistic factors. Man is a result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. Okay? So that pretty succinctly explains that everything we understand about the history of life and the history of, of the universe can be explained by natural means. And that's, uh, and that's certainly a prevailing. I, you know, as a scientist, I run into folks that have this kind of view all the time. Um, and I got invited to, uh, to, to, to speak to a student group, and the whole the student club was, was a group of atheists, and they invited me to speak on this topic, uh, which was kind of interesting, but uh, this, is, um, um, this is pretty typical. All right, so and we go from that to deism. So in terms of the relationship of science and theology, a deist, you'll see kind of two forms of that. One of them is a, 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 a deist will say, um, God exists, but I have no rational evidence for it. I, I, you know, he exists, but he's not been involved in the formation of the natural world at all. But I believe he's out there. Um, in, in his uh, uh, rendition of coming to view his view of God, Einstein at times, if you read his reading, was, was a deist. He kind of he moved and changed, but at, at one point he said, I believe there's a God out there. I just I can't prove it. I don't have any evidence of it, but I believe he's out there. So that's, that's one form that you'll see, this idea that there's a God, but he's not been involved in nature at all. Uh, but another form may be that, um, that God's been involved. We just can't know it. We can't detect it, we can't determine it, and we have no evidence of it. But God was involved in the formation. Now you see this very typical, uh, very common among uh, scientists who are religious, who are believers. And, and they, they want to, they, they've got this science thing over there, over here, and this, this kind of commitment to naturalism uh, of a sense but they also have this understanding that naturalism doesn't answer all the questions, and yet they have this, this faith, this belief in God. And so the way that they deal with this is a deist thought. Um, so let me read you a, a quote from a, a Kenneth Miller, who is a, a, an ardent evolutionary biologist, but also a devout Catholic. And he wrote a book called um, Finding Darwin's God. And this is one quote from that book. The indeterminate nature of quantum events could allow a clever and subtle God to influence events in ways that are profound but scientifically undetectable to us. These events could include uh, the appearance of mutations, the individual cells and organisms affected by chance processes of radioactive decay. In other words, he's saying, his evolution guy, 
And he's saying a clever and subtle God could come in and uh, guide evolution in a way with mutations and so forth, but it's undetectable to us. He's very, very much anti-intelligent design or any kind of idea that there's evidence of a designer out there, but yet he's a believer. And so the way he deals with this is through a form of, uh, a form of deism. All right? Here's another one. This one's a fun one. Panspermia. Anybody know what that is? Yes. The life being seeded from somewhere else. Yes, life being seeded by aliens or something else. Now, we say this is a crazy one. We'll move on, and I don't want to spend a lot of time with it, but I mention it because this is a good example of a scientist who saw scientific evidence that said, hey, naturalism doesn't explain this, so I've got to come up with another theory. Okay? Everybody heard of Watson and Crick? Uh, discovered DNA. Well, uh, Francis Crick published a book called Life Itself in 1981. And he wrote this book because um, at that time, and really still currently, there are no good theories for the origins of life. Right? Chemically, because it's a chemistry issue. And there are no good theories for the, for the origin of life, and he saw that. I mean, he was a DNA guy, and the formation of DNA by chemistry just, it, it just wasn't there. And so he wrote this book to say, hey, can't really happen this way. This is what I think. I think aliens, he, in fact, he believed in direct panspermia, which means it wasn't an accident from a meteor that brought a bacteria from somewhere. They came and did this, right? And he had no evidence for it. His wife thought he was crazy. But uh, he was a prominent uh, scientist who he saw this intersection, and it didn't make sense to him, and so this was his theory. All right. Um, okay, next one. Theistic evolution. So this is very common uh, among the, the science community. And theistic evolution goes kind of like this. God was directly involved in the origin of the universe and the origin of life. But then natural processes took over in terms of the formation and descent of life as we know it on this planet. So, uh, so the origin of the universe, the origin of life, was, uh, was guided by God, was determined by God, but yet evolution took over, and uh, that's uh, what we, you know, and, and, and happened through purely natural processes. Um, so the, the major proponent of this, this was kind of started by a guy named Francis Collins. He wrote a book called The Language of God. And Francis Collins was, um, was a scientist who uh, ran the Human Genome Project, which sequenced the human genome. So he was a DNA guy. And um, he was also very deeply religious, a believer. And so he, he came up with this idea. He started an organization called BioLogos, which you can see their website. Okay, a lot of, lot of folks um, uh, uh, sign up uh, for this and, and read this site. But let me read you something from their site. The diversity and interrelation of all life on Earth, Earth are best explained by the God-ordained process of evolution. 
with common descent. Thus, evolution is not in opposition to God, but is the means by which God providentially achieves his purposes. Okay? So the theistic evolutionists believe that God was there. You can, you can, uh, the evidence indicates that in terms of the formation of the universe and the formation of life in the beginning, that there's certainly clearly evidence that God was involved in that process, but then things naturally happened um, from there. Um, also very common in scientific uh, circles among uh, people who um, are, you know, have a strong faith and yet um, have a, a science background, particularly biological science scientists, you'll see this. All right, next one. Old Earth creationism. So, uh, so creationism has, if you'll see this written, creation, people will use this in different contexts. Some people will use it just to, um, as a derogatory term, but typically uh, this term is best described as a person who believes in uh, discontinuous creation. In other words, you read Genesis 1, there were six days of creation. They were distinct events that happened in sequence. And creation is best used as a term to describe people who believe in six, you know, continuous uh, or six discontinuous sequence of events, which described as you would read in Genesis chapter 1. So this group of people believe in the six... Um, uh, uh, discontinuous events uh, describing creation, but they believe they happened over long periods of time. So this is the day age kind of theory. Um, probably the best proponent if you want to read about this kind of theory would be Hugh Ross. Um, and uh, he's written many books on all kinds of topics. Uh, he's a physicist and uh, theologian and has written uh, a lot about this. If you want to read about his theories about how he interprets Genesis 1 in terms of an old earth creationism, read the Genesis question. He has a very, very elaborate description of the sequences that are described in Genesis 1 and how scientific and, and uh, paleontology supports those sequence of events, but over long periods of time. He even has times associated with the day, days, age, air quotes, days. And, uh, and so he's, he's very elaborately worked out his theory. Um, and, um, and so that would be an old earth creationism um, would be the way to describe um, his, his theory, okay? Okay, I probably don't have to talk about this one much. Young Earth creationism um, would be obviously the idea that creation occurred in a discontinuous sequence of events uh, over a short period of time. You know, six to 50,000 years is typically, you'll see those numbers floated around in terms of uh, um, the idea of young earth creationism. Uh, you can point to people like Ken Ham and Robert Morris as kind of the proponents 
are the kind of modern proponents of this particular way of interpreting uh, science and the Bible. Okay? Now, again, I won't spend a lot of time because it's probably the one that you're most familiar with uh, on that one. And then we have kind of, I would say, an overarching one that might be like this. It could even be here. Um, and that would be intelligent design theory. Um, so a lot of books, a lot is written about intelligent design theory. If you talk to scientists who don't like intelligent design theory, they use creationism as a, as a term to be derogatory. They would say intelligent design creationists. Um, uh, but uh, intelligent design theory is, uh, has a very, very, they've really tried to focus and be uh, very focused on one thing that they believe is scientifically provable. Um, and that is that certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process such as natural selection. So basically they say there are certain aspects of cosmology, biology, which can be best explained um, by not natural process, but a design process. And there are a number of books. I told you uh, Michael Behe's uh, books. He's a biochemist from Lehigh University. Um, he wrote Darwin's Black Box and then The Edge of Evolution. Uh, there's been lots of other, the latest one in terms of DNA signature, signature of the cell, which I have on my bookcase I haven't had time to read yet. But, um, uh, but this particular idea, uh, the reason I put it not in, in linear is because uh, it kind of overlaps with, with others. I mean, there are young earth creationists who fall in the IDT community, as well as old earth creationists, as well as... Theistic evolution, although if you go on Biologo's site, they say we don't, we don't think much of uh, intelligent de design theory, but at the same time they say there's evidence of design in, in the universe, right? Which, which in essence kind of means that they do think that there is some idea. I mean, if you believe in directed panspermia, it's a form of intelligent design theory if you believe there's evidence there as well. Um, the intelligent design theory uh, group has uh, purposely tried to market themselves as not anti-evolution, even though they do uh, write books that say evolution doesn't answer all the questions. I know I think you're going to talk about evolution in the future, so I don't want to talk much about that. But, um, but they try to market themselves as not an anti-evolution group. And also you have wide disparity of people. Michael Behe is committed to... Uh, common descent. He believes that the scientific evidence for common descent is there. But he's a very strong intelligent design theorist and biochemist. So you have a wide array of opinions of, of a group which is really focused on one thought and, um, and that is um, that, um, that there is evidence of design uh, in the universe. Okay, and I have like no minutes, right? Um, uh, let me just uh, uh, tell you in two minutes what I was going to say about genetics and biochemistry. I was actually going to talk about common descent a little bit and kind of show you as an example of the arguments that go back and forth with common, common descent. The idea that even among uh, Christian scientists, they see, they see evidence of common descent in the DNA. The idea that 
the sequence of DNA, if you look at organisms, you can develop um, actual trees that, uh, that you can develop, not with homologous structures like Darwin did, but a homologous DNA. And then, and, and others say that, well, that's, that's very, the counter argument to that is that's very logical because if you have a designer, a designer always uses similar design models when he does it, so that makes perfect sense. So then the other argument with common descent is that you see sequences in junk DNA. There are sequences in the, I don't have time to talk about junk DNA, but most of our DNA is made up of DNA which doesn't code for protein or RNA. It just seems to be structural. And so there are sequences that are passed down that seem to be strong evidence for um, <coughs> common descent. But then others are saying, well, we're starting to find out DNA is really not junk DNA anymore. It really has purpose. So these arguments go back and forth, and they're very interesting to folks like me that, uh, that like to talk about this. Um, so, I am just about out of time. I really will hang around if somebody wants to ask some questions. Um, uh, but uh, I think we're, right, we're out. We're out. All right, thanks. He, he I yes, go ahead. Yes. Feel free to leave if you sort of pick up the kids. Uh, touched on the abiogenesis a little bit. I'm, I'm curious to see, um, do you not see anything in organic chemistry that would lead you to think that maybe there's a path towards RNA and DNA? Well, I mean, if you talk to folks in the origin of life area, they will say there is evidence in organic chemistry that we can get there, you know, from a chemistry standpoint uh, to get there. But others who, who talk about those things uh, say that, um, that, um, that it's difficult to get there in such a way that you would form the first set. Is that where you fall? Um, yeah, I think the I think certainly there's there are no credible. I mean, even even scientists who have a naturalistic view say we don't have a credible chemistry theory for the origin of life right now. Um, whether it's RNA or DNA, that's right. Exactly. Yes. A lot of creationists use uh, the second law of thermodynamics as a as an argument against evolution. Right. From a genetics perspective, because things go from order to disorder. Right. Yeah. Um, how would you address that? Well, I think we, we have evidence it, it, with, with evolution from a microevolution standpoint that evolution can, uh, can have beneficial kinds of results. The question is, how far can you go with that? Will that form new structures? That's the real question. Without help, right? Can it do naturally? That was kind of Michael Behe's promotion in The Edge of Evolution. And he said, when he looks at biochemistry, basically two, two mutations, beneficial, or even two mutations at the same time, resulting in a beneficial effect on a molecule is very, very rare. And if you're going to form whole structures, if you're going to change whole structures, you have, you've got to talk about a lot more than that to get there. So his argument was, from that standpoint, it's got to have help. It's got to have help. But, you know, we use evolution all the time. I'll say, you know, my wife, Jenny, way back in, at Mississippi State, we had an elder at the church there. His whole area of research was about evolution. What he was doing was every year he was growing cotton, and he'd count the boll weevils on the cotton. Well, Jenny would count the boll weevils on the cotton. <laughs> and then every year they would take the plants that had the least boll weevils and plant them the next year. And the idea was to use natural evolution 
to try to grow a cotton plant that didn't have boll weevils. It was evolution, but it was guided. Guided evolution, right? Some of you have little dogs like that, right? They are examples of guided evolution. They came from some wild dog out in the woods, you know? And uh, we've, you know, we've used guided evolution to get to, to that dog. So, you know, there's some beneficial things that can happen. Did you play baseball at Mississippi State? I played one year of baseball at Mississippi State. Yes, I did. Then I wasn't good enough for them. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.